0: As we talk about 1 Peter tonight, we kind of bring this day to a close. I hope I can say something that will be beneficial to you and you'll find encouraging. And I very much enjoyed our other speakers and, and studying this and reading this. And I've gotten a lot out of it. And I hope that, that you have too. And um, we're going to jump into it, to it in a minute. And, and we are going to go ahead and open with a review. And I was thinking about that. We reviewed it every time. But, you know, as we study something like this and we look at a book like this, I think it's more than just trying to glean the strength and encouragement from the spiritual side of things. I think studying chapters like this and books like this, we're also trying to gain a better just general working knowledge of these chapters and committing some of these things to memory and, and having them at hand for us. So I think it is good to, to review and take a look at these things every time we jump back into it. So looking into it, up, quicker. there we go, in our review, if you remember, Peter was the author and he called himself an, an apostle of Christ. Um, and verse 13 says, the church that is at Babylon, and this is in chapter five, elected together with you, saluteth you. And so doth Marcus, my son, talking about where it's at. And it says Babylon there, but most likely it's referring to Rome. And at this time period, uh, looking at Rome, both cities, the current and this past city, had kind of given into idols. They were both widely known for that, for false gods and idol worship. So we think that that's probably, probably a metaphor for the same idea. Um, and that's kind of maybe even been a common metaphor at the time, not really sure. But probably written between 60 and 64 AD, somewhere around there. And, As we've talked about a lot, you know, Christians were facing tremendous amount of persecution for that time at Nero, and it was a very difficult time for the first century church, and here they are in their their growth period, and this is one of the most persecuted times of the church. Christians everywhere facing such persecution, facing such difficulty, and Peter spends a lot of time talking with them about that, and spends a lot of time comforting them. And if you think about Peter, he's a person, obviously, who has... Been through a lot, a person who has seen a lot, has seen suffering firsthand, but a part of suffering firsthand, and, and witnessed the suffering of Christ even firsthand. So moving into our review, looking at our last chapters that we kind of went through, remember uh, chapter one, the idea was expressed quite a bit of faith with purpose. And he talked a lot about uh, keeping faithful during trials. And that's something actually we see a lot throughout the entire study. And he reminded us, and this is something I think that was important, he reminded us where our true citizenship lies, not here, but in the kingdom of God. And I think that's something sometimes we need to stop each day and and remind ourselves of, that we're just passing through here. Our our citizenship was the kingdom of God, and that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And if we're redeemed by the blood of Christ, that kind of goes to the idea of chapter 2, living boldly for Christ. And if you remember, it says, you're a chosen generation, a, a royal priesthood. And it talked a lot about You know, we can do everything right. We can do everything well and good, but we may still wind up in situations where we are treated badly. But as Christians, we continue on in the faith, and not only in the faith, but living boldly for Christ and in everything that we do. And if we're living for boldly in Christ, it kind of goes to the idea that we're also going to be like Christ. And that was the main focus of chapter three in everything we do, being like Christ, whether we're servants, whether we're masters, whether we're husbands and wives, treating each other as Christ intended, as joint heirs. And we all need to live with the idea of, of love and compassion and courteousness to ourselves and everything that we do in our lives. And then being like Christ, well, we know Christ suffered in chapter 4, talked about suffering like Christ. And it says, for he that suffered in flesh hath ceased from sin. And we talked a lot about the suffering that we have as a Christian, but that it can be a blessing, that it can be a good thing, that it shapes us. And Laura even talked a little bit about the idea of You know, if you haven't suffered in your Christian life, maybe to stop and think about that. You know, maybe you're not putting yourself out there enough. Maybe you're not not talking about God's word with other people enough. You're not in those kinds of situations where you face something like that. But moving forward to chapter 5, just breaking it down a little bit, a small overview as we get into it. Chapter, verses 1 through 4, is an exhortation to the elders. And we have talked about this a little bit recently. We went through several studies on leadership. We're going to take a few moments, though, and and look at that again. And uh, verses 5 through 7 talks about humbling yourselves before God, submitting yourself to God and submitting yourself to someone, other's wills, someone other's, someone's other will. Excuse me. Um, verses eight through nine is a warning, and uh, not only a warning, but also a reminder of where we draw our strength from as it prepares us for the world and some of the things that we'll face. And then, of course, 10 through 14 wraps it up. There's um, a small prayer, and then there's the conclusions and the farewells and some of the things that we're used to seeing at the end of some of the letters and things. Uh, but jumping into it, let's move in verse number one the elders which are among you i exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed so right off the bat here you know we see peter i think what he's doing in a sense he's establishing to me it seems like he's establishing credibility he's not bragging he's establishing who he is you know when i just i just jumped back into this teaching job in the middle of the year and walk into these kids in a video production class so one of the first things i did i said hey don't worry yeah, you know, I was in video production, I've worked in it for 20 years, and I've taught it for 12 years, so I kind of know what you guys are looking for and what you guys need and what you guys are going through. And that's, I think, what he is doing here. He's establishing kind of who he is. But we take a moment, and look at this, that it starts with an exhortation to elders. We think, well, why are they jumping into that now? Why is he saying, talking to the elders? But think back to the verse before us, and that helps us to think of this, I'd say, as kind of a, a therefore statement. Because remember, chapter 4, Peter talks a lot about the suffering of Christ. He talks about, I think the words he uses are fiery trials that are even coming. Um, Don't have that on there. Verse 18 says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Talks about the difficult world and the things that they're going to face and that we're going to face a lot of as well. So I think the idea is all those things, those trials, those difficulties. Therefore, elders, this is what you need to do to help the flock. So remember also that these books, you know, they weren't broken into chapters when they were written originally. It was a letter, so it flowed together like that. So that's how I think we need to see this. He's talked about all those other things, the trials you're going to face. Therefore, elders, I want to talk to you about what you need to do now. and um, we look at here, and we know with the elders that there is a serious charge placed on their shoulders. There is a lot of responsibility given to them. We know from other New Testament passages and from our studies that we've seen the seriousness of that charge, and that's what they do. That is what is in their hearts Hopefully that they are working each and every day for our souls, looking out for us, and they want us to get to heaven. And we think about in the Old Testament, if you look at it, you know, a lot of times judgment started with elders and started with the priests and things. So there may even be some multiple layers kind of to a warning that we see in his exhortation to them. And when Peter says, I am an elder, you know, he's saying, hey, I'm right here in this fight with you. I'm going to suffer right along beside you. I know what you're going through. We're working together on this. And when he says... Witness of the sufferings of Christ, I think he's not only talking about, yeah, he saw some of these things, but witness in the sense of, I am a teacher of these things as well. And that's what he's talking about. We're going to get into teaching the flock. He's saying, I teach these things as well and teach about Jesus. Verse 2, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples of God. To the flock. Remember John twenty one, fifteen and seventeen, when Christ was talking to Peter, and he said, Do you love me? He said, Yeah, Lord, I love you. And he said, Feed my sheep. And he said again, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Remember, he asked him that three times. That was a big charge. And that kind of ties into this idea we think about here when he told him, Feed my sheep. And now Paul is talking about that with others. He's telling them, You got to teach them. You gotta oversee them. You've got to guide them. You've got to tend to them. And importantly, you have to do so willingly. Not because you get stuck with it, not because nobody else will do it. You need to do it because you love them and you want to see them get to heaven. And remember, God always wants us to choose to serve him, right? I think it's the exact same thing here. He wants elders who are choosing to do this service, who want to be a part of this, who want to tend to the flock. And he says, don't do it for dishonest gain, but do it eagerly. Do it because you're ready to help with the willingness to be there, to be a servant, and not domineering, not lording it over others, not bossing them around, but being the richest and the best-looking and the smartest. No, it doesn't say that. It says, but being an example unto them, being a servant. Just like Christ said, just like Christ was, the ultimate example, he was a servant. And that's what it's kind of pointing at here, I think. And then verse 4, it says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear... Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So now he brings in the hope that is for the elders. Uh, Here's the motivation. Here's the strength the draw on the reasoning to do this big charge that's laid on them that we just talked about up above. Here's the reason we're doing that. Here's the reason you're running that race. Here's the reason you are looking out for those individuals because you've got this wonderful prize ahead. So now moving forward, he kind of jumps on, jumps forward the same idea, but now he exhorts the younger, right? And says, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. In verse five and six, talking about submitting and humbling yourself before someone, I had to think about that a lot. And I think the last few years of my life, I've started to understand that more and more. What that is, that's the, those are similar ideas, and they're the ideas of kind of giving up your own choices, giving up your own will, following someone else's will, following someone else's ideas, yielding to someone else's ideas. And if our elders are acting in accordance with God's will, then we in turn are doing God's will if we're submitting to their ideas and listening to what they want us to do. And then Peter says, not just the young, remember, he says, but everyone. And he says, be humble. Submit to each other, meaning to me, serve each other, put each other first. I'm not greater than you. You're not higher than me. And we need to remember that we're all simply disciples of Jesus working together in the kingdom to hopefully get each other to heaven and to get other people out there to heaven to strengthen each other, and to serve each other. You know, you look at a lot of denominations around the world, and they seem to try to make a lot of distinctions sometimes between the leadership and the flock through robes and titles and ceremonies and things. And I don't really see that in the Bible, I think, when I study, and I don't really see that amongst us. And, you know, to me, we're all in this together. We all have roles, but we're all working and supporting and serving each other to help us get to heaven and to help others out there and to be an example unto others. And it talks about God resisting the proud. And think about that. That follows right along with this logic, because if you can't submit to God's will, you can't humble yourself to his will, then you're too proud. He's going to resist you, because that's what pride is. Pride keeps you from doing that. So, of course, he's going to resist you, because you're not submitting yourself to his will. Those who are too wise to trust in his will. We see that so much in today's world. People think they have the answers to everything and they think, oh, religion and God is silly and outdated. They're gonna be in trouble. And those who put themselves first, we see a lot of that in the world too. It's a very now, 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 me, me, me kind of world. But man, you gotta put others first. You gotta put God and that will ahead of your own. So there's no grace for you if you can't submit to God's will, if you can't turn your life over to God. It all works together to make sense. And if we do that... Just like the elders in verse four, we start to see a reward here. It says that we will be exalted too. That was their reward when the work that they did, well, same thing for us. You humble yourselves, you do these things, and there's a reward here as well. When Christ returns to this earth, we're gonna receive that reward of heaven, that eternal glory. And then we look at verse seven, and at first thought it seems a little different, but it's not. It is not a separate thought. It goes hand in hand. How humble are you really? How submissive are you really if you can't turn to someone And trust them with your burdens and cares. Because it's humbling to say, man, I really need your help. I need you to carry me through this situation. Those ideas work together. And if we're not able to do that, are we really trusting in others? Are we really trusting in God if we can't turn our burdens and our cares over to him? I think those things go hand in hand. And do we try sometimes to solve those difficult problems on our own? Or do we turn them over to God truly and truly submit to his will, truly trust in him? I just think this all goes hand in hand and I, I love the way it all works together when I look at it. And Psalm 55 and 22 says, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Then moving forward in verse eight, we shift gears a little bit, but at the same time, not really. Again, essentially so far we've had exhortations and then, hey, this is the re- reward if you follow that. Kind of the same thing here. It's a warning, but it's also saying do this and this will be the result of it. The verse eight says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world." The first thing I see here when I think about this is something I think we all need to stop and consider every day and every morning when we wake up: is that it's not just us against the world; we have a true adversary who is out there and he's not taking a break. When we wake up in the morning, he's already up. He doesn't want us to submit our will to God. He doesn't want us to serve each other. He doesn't want us to be humble. So we have to think about that and we have to be ready for that and not forget that. Devour means to eat hungrily or quickly to destroy completely. That's what he would love. He would love to keep us from submitting to God's will. And Peter, he's not addressing drunkenness when he talks about being sober. He's encouraged them to be serious-minded to be focused and awake to things that are going on around them and for the things that are going on around us. Because as I said, we have a true adversary, someone that doesn't want us to humble ourselves before God. So what does it say then? It says to resist, to resist and be faithful. And he's reminding them, which is probably very important at a time like now when the first century church was facing such persecution, he's reminding them that your brethren everywhere are facing The same difficulties they're facing the same afflictions they're facing the same sufferings that you are and we still have this same adversary so we're facing a lot of the same things as well it's a reminder to all of us as well and he wants us to take comfort in that that's what a lot of this is here's the problem but take comfort in this we are not alone in this fight in james 4 and 7 says submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee from you same idea have faith and resist Trust in God in the things that we do. And then verse 10, it says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter, knowing the sufferings that Christians are facing, knowing the sufferings that we're facing, knowing the difficult things in life that we all deal with, Starts to wrap up and end here with a small prayer. And we think about the things that Peter has seen, the things that he has been through. And Peter, when he was younger, he made a lot of mistakes. I mean, he was a rash young individual. He sometimes doubted, he sometimes tried to take things into his own hands. But here, he calls to memory for each of us and reminds us what the true source of our strength is, and that is God. And if you notice, it doesn't say, if you suffer, It says, but when you suffer. But he says it in a way to me that offers us hope. He says, ah, you're gonna suffer a little while. To me, meaning in the grand scheme of things, our suffering is nothing compared to an eternity in heaven. We're on this earth for a short time, and that suffering we go through should strengthen us and shape us to be stronger and better as God's people. And he kind of brings it all full circle, all the talk of suffering and persecution and all those things, he says, One day, all that's going to be behind you, and there is a reward waiting. And he says, his eternal glory. And I I think about those words, his eternal glory, and what that means. Being in God's presence forever. Being in a place of perfection and joy forever. And that is why we run the race. That is why we walk in the light and try not to deviate from it. And why we can endure the sufferings and things that it talks about here. That's what we're working for. Romans 8 and 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Beautiful passage to me. And then getting into the end here, he kind of starts wrapping things up, and he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity, Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus, amen. So kind of just breaking this down, looking at it a little bit, we've talked about Sylvanus probably being the one who penned this letter and and wrote it for him. um, But looking at this part here, Paul then, at the end of this, he's reminding us, you know, we talk about seeing God's grace, witnessing God's grace, but he's reminding us here that we are partakers of it, his true grace, and we think about what that is, his true grace love and forgiveness for those who do not deserve it i read recently that karma is getting what you deserve but grace is getting what you don't deserve and i thought man that's that's a pretty neat thought because that is true because we don't deserve god's love and mercy and forgiveness and this gift of heaven um and and that's what he's reminding us about here and then looking at we talked a little bit about early the church that is babylon probably as i said a symbolic representation of rome um is both modern and ancient city very much known for their uh, false gods their idol worship all those things and you never know i mean perhaps peter was even protecting an identity here or a location of a church I, I don't know maybe so maybe those who have studied more have come across that idea but i thought that was kind of interesting too um and then when he says "Marcus, my son i assume i think most likely he's talking about john mark the author of the, the gospel of mark and it's thought that he was in rome at this time so that also strengthens the idea that this letter was uh from rome and it shows a kind of a strengthening too i think of their relationship and you know a lot of things i've read I've talked about peter possibly being influential in mark's writings when he was writing the gospel some of those accounts and things might have come from him i'm not sure just just thoughts and things i've read that I thought were pretty interesting but lastly uh with when he ends this up is a very nice thought here he ends with wishing for love and for peace for christians everywhere and his fellow christians And that was probably very, very much needed at a time like this when they were facing such persecution, they were in such a troubled time, but I know it's also something that we all need and we all wish on each other in today's world when we go out there and when we face it and the things that we come in contact with. And um, I don't have a whole lot of thoughts on that tonight, it's a short chapter, but I've, I've really enjoyed it and I've seen there are so many different things to pull out of, of this study of First Peter, the idea of just reminding us to live boldly for Christ, for having a faith with purpose, for suffering like Christ, but being reminded of the graces that we have and of the, the rewards that are to come and that we're all suffering it together, supporting each other, serving each other, submitting our will to God and being humble people and being the examples out there that we need to be.